Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Here we are again, Brendan here with Mark, VetGurus, VetGurus.com, episode 109, 109. Geez, they fly past, don't they, Mark? Friday, November the 15th, 2019. And Mark, I need to ask, are you safe and how have you been going with the fires up in your region of um, Eastern Australia. So, do you want to talk a little oh, bit about sure. that? I presume you we- had a bit, fair bit of the smoke over your area of Newcastle because I saw it was mentioned in the news. Yes, we times. have had a fair bit of uh, smoke um, sullying the sky, and particularly from um, a little distance west of us, there was two big fires, and uh, and the westerly winds did pour it over our, um, you know, gave us some brilliant sunsets. We have had a couple of fires that have been not um, they're, uh, much more close to the hospital, about um, the closest one was about 5Ks away and um, and uh, they still are burning at the moment. They're not out completely but, um, and tomorrow's it's pretty close, isn't it, really? I mean, five kilometres isn't that far. We, it's one of the things about our part of the world that we, we moved here and set up the practice because we're so close to the bush that we love so much. But um, you've got to accept that uh, that if you're going to um, live in that sort of a place, there are risks. Though I must say, Brendan, I have been very disappointed with the discourse here in Australia um, uh, in that um, we're not allowed to politicise these events at the time they occur, unless, of course, um, we're um, decrying, you know, separating um, climate change from any effect on these uh, these events. Um, so I'm, I'm all one for uh, talking about problems as they happen so that we can prevent them from occurring in the future. Yes, well, I think the only comment I'd make on that is I, I don't know what commentator said it, but it was on the TV at one stage a couple of days ago. They said, well, if we're not going to talk about it now, when are we? Um, do we just keep delaying things forever? Um, so that's all I'd that's, that's my only comment about it, Mark. But, yeah, good to hear that you're safe. And um, unfortunately, um, some people aren't safe and there were a few deaths here in Australia um, with these recent bouts of the bushfires and also lots of animals suffering as well, Mark. And um, I, I didn't chat to you about this beforehand, but we I had, had some contact from the AVA head office here and um, we are um, helping set up a uh, bit of a response and, and, and there will be a webinar um in the next few weeks um, to help Australian veterinarians um, in responding to dealing with burnt animals, Mark, and not just wildlife but um, the horse vets and the cattle vets and all the other vets have sort of got together and there'll be a a bit of a webinar and um, there's also already some care sheets out there about the basics of dealing with burnt burnt victims as far as our um, animal patients. But, yeah, um, I think it's a good thing. So look out for that in the next few weeks and um, one of our members um, hopefully will be involved with presenting that, Mark. So, yeah. Um, so I think that's also fire season, isn't it? In um, well, What do they call They call them wildfires, don't they, in the States? The bizarre um, so. thing, though, is that um, 
Yes, yes, it used to be we would never have fires while they were having them there, but now the whole planet's on fire. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, not good, and I think it's only going to get worse, but let's put out that fire <laughs> mark and move on to something else. Um, work has been work, quite busy the last few days. Um, had one of those days, as you do, Mark, um, yesterday, and... Um, had a, had a 15 and a half year old dog in for a, a dental that Belinda had booked in that definitely needed a dental um, because its teeth were rotting and falling out at, at a bit of a border collie cross. And uh, as soon as I injected the induction agent, it decided to oh, stop God. breathing on us and um, went into full on purple mode. And um, yeah, so we had to go into resuscitation mode with that one and um, I was just going to wake it up and Belinda jumped in with the adrenaline and we already had the drip going. And interestingly enough, it's one of those ones where we did the full pre and I see the screen on it and it all came back perfect um, with it. And uh, But, gee, the teeth were, were terrible. And thank goodness Belinda had told the clients or mentioned to the clients that, look, we it is sort of a quality of life thing. The teeth were that bad, one of those rotten mouths that needed doing and did mention um, not many alternatives with it and uh, apart from euthanasia, I think she actually mentioned at one stage. So, But anyway, it did stabilise, thank goodness. Its heart rate dropped well below 40 at one stage and, um, yeah, it was um, one of those, you know, days you sort of don't like and then... Um, yeah, we got it back around, thank goodness, and I um, just kept it fairly light-ish with the anaesthesia and I ripped out about eight or ten teeth, including two carnassials that um, wow. I didn't have to section. They were that bad. They came out fairly easily. <laughs> so, um, and it went home yesterday. So, yeah, that was <laughs> I was having this precise discussion with our staff today that we've just had a few weeks where every single case that comes in is multi-layered and complex comorbidities on comorbidities and um i don't know i'm the same as you brendan i just love a cat fight abscess to come in or you know the simple one-dimensional problems um yes well my day today was um as I mentioned beforehand, off air the desexing. Um, I was on surgery this morning, so I did four rabbit spays or rabbit desexings this morning, and uh, it's a welfare group. And three of those four were <laughs> pregnant, um, unfortunately. So yeah, that was. Uh, and after I'd done about the second or the third one, I said, oh, "I'm bored now." Uh, to Sandy, the anaesthetic nurse, and she said, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I said, well, "Actually, I quite enjoy doing rabbit spays, and um, I must admit, I find them quite relaxing, even the one." that are heavily gravid it's just um because i've probably done so many but i i, I find them very enjoyable but that's me i'm a weird kind of guy Mark. i've always said that about uh, you yeah, so <laughs> one of the things i love about you <laughs> so there we go so enough about that i want to talk about a news story mark um and I've only got one this week, and it's one of my favourite um, countries, as you know, India. And it is a good news you story are, again. Are, I'm but... trying to really stick the positive news. I'm very positive. It's India's wild tigers are up by more than 30%, and Indian neighbouring Nepal are on track to hit 2022 targets of doubling their wild 
tiger population and this was suggested that India is on track to hit the target set out in the St. Petersburg Declaration, which was in 2010, for which countries pledged to double their national wild tiger populations by 2022. And at that time, India had an estimated 1,700 tigers. And they do a bit of a, a census, Mark, an official survey and according to the survey, the population of tigers in India has risen to 2,967, up from 2,226 four years ago. So the census is carried out and collected by wildlife officials um, across 380,000 square kilometres, and it draws on data from 350,000 images they also take in tiger habitat. So I presume might they'd be those sort of remote camera systems that they um, plant um, in some of the tiger-infested areas. So that's fantastic. That's a good news story. That's all I've got to say about that. And go tigers. It is a good news story. It is a good news story. Well, I've got um, uh, mine's a. Well, I think of it as a good news story. I think it's um, it's a. Uh, well, it certainly makes me laugh. I've got to tell you that much, yes. Brendan. Um, this is the story of um, a, a steppe eagle. Um, so uh, one of the Russian bird tracking programs whacked a tracking device onto one of these um, steppe eagles, and the way they set it up was that um, there was a, uh, a um, uh, SMS card, a mobile phone card, whacked into the tracker so that the tracker could um, send the eagle's precise location 12 times a day and uh, that record was uh, texted, the coordinates were texted to the researcher's number. Now, of course, what they didn't count on was that the uh, the bird which spent the summer out of coverage in Western Kazakhstan, um, the bird flew to Iran and um, it flew so quickly that the tracker still had mobile connection um, and they hadn't turned off um, data roaming. So the bird was sending 12 text messages um, on international roaming, um, dumping the uh, the backlog GPS data um, all the data from the time that they was they were um, wandering around was it Western Kazakhstan, and they literally blew the budget of the um, of the uh, study group trying to track the animals. They virtually sent them bankrupt. Brendan was very funny. It was very funny, and it just reminded me, as you as you know, I'm about to say is they should obviously have have used one of the Live track um, systems from Microchips Australia um, um, to track these eagles. Although I think um, perhaps they wouldn't um, be very effective because I think the battery had run out after three or four days there. But yeah, um, it's pretty amazing that it, it's the tech in these sort of things, Mark, that um, it, it sort of holds on to those text messages until it, um, or those um, coordinates until it's within range and it must get a ping back from the from the tower once it um, ends up getting in contact with, with um, civilization again and then it just dumps out all its stuff um, to it. Um, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Um, I reckon that would be such fun working on that sort of stuff, don't you think? I reckon it would be. Fun. The only thing that would be bad was the day that you went into work and you saw the um, – uh, 
quarter of a million rubles that had just been racked up on international roaming, um, you know, several months after you lost track of the bird. Um, it would be exciting <laughs> to, that you reconnected with the bird, but having to um, get on to uh, crowdfunding to put money on the eagle's phone, that's hilarious. Or it'd be, I reckon it'd be, it'd be worse if it sort of went out of range and you didn't get any of the data and think, oh no, it's it's dead, it's 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 um, just lying on the ground somewhere. Which reminds me of a story <laughs> of a uh, let's call it a wedge tail eagle mark here in Australia that was tracked. Um, it was one that was rehabilitated in a zoo and um, it was and I'm not going to mention which zoo it was it may not be the one that you'd immediately spring to mind um, Mark and um, it was released it was released into the wild as part of a big PR um, well a big PR announcement um, that they were and it, uh, it's a bit of a complex one, this, and it was sponsored by a particular insurance company that um, has a bird um, as its sort of motto there, so um, which seems sort of appropriate at the times. But they were pushing to get some publicity for their and money uh, and um, some publicity for their money they were putting into the project. So there's a bit of pressure on the PR department of this particular zoo to get something out there, and the bird was released when perhaps... In hindsight, it shouldn't have been released and it was tracked um, for probably several days, maybe a week or so, Mark, and then um, and they were putting out news news items about it saying how that, um, you know, it's got this fancy tracker on it and um, look how far it's gone and, you know, it's up, it's back out in the wild, it's been rehabilitated. And then for several days in a row it didn't move um, and um, they were trying to work out a spin um, on saying why it hadn't moved and it was, yeah, it's found a nest site and it's found, it, you know, it's, it's found some food and it's just, you know, gorged itself and it's sitting there nicely and it stayed in this same spot for several weeks. Um, <laughs> and you know what happened? Everybody knew that, um, well, everybody was involved um, and I had some peripheral involvement with it um, and and the thought was it probably wasn't quite ready to be released um, and it wasn't fit to survive out there in the wild, which it wasn't. Um, and, yeah, it had only lasted several days, um, let alone several weeks, um, and it ended up just dying and not finding any food out there in the wild. And, um, yeah, it was just sat on the on the floor of the forest there and, um, yeah, they finally um, gave in as far as trying to spin it um, publicity-wise and um, somebody finally managed to convince them to go out there with the tracker and um, worked out that, yeah, um, they found uh, basically a, a skeleton that had been left there because it was several weeks, if not several months, before they finally went out to get it. Um, yeah. um, and there was some crazy postscript to the story that um, they did put out one final supposedly positive PR spin on it that was saying that maybe it didn't... Um, starved to death um that it was something else that had been poisoned or something but yeah um but yeah that's the difficulties i think sometimes dealing with um dealing with, with conflicting um interests well we had um, a, and a very um, similar story at uh, our hospital we we were lucky to get called particularly in um lake macquarie there's occasionally little flurries of um 
of green sea turtles and uh, and we had one that was a bit of a maladjustment and we worked with the people at Taronga Zoo to, um, to do a bit of rehab work and we were pretty lucky to get to go out on the boat at the time that turtle was re-released and they did the same thing they had a tracker on it um but it um it was a bit of a success brendan it uh we were able to follow it uh swimming up the east australian coast against the eac the famous nemo current coming down the east coast of australia and um and yeah they they had a same sort of arrangement lovely web page where you could go and check where the turtle was it was they had a bunch of them that were that were uh, radio trackable, and um, and so it does provide a lot of data. This collection of animals' movements, and just as our uh, <laughs> our good f- friend, the um, step eagle, um, they, um, they they it's often quite a surprise what they actually do do, where they go, and uh, how long it takes them to get there. It's all um, pretty exciting stuff, and it's good to be involved in, provided you're not footing the bill for the international roaming costs. Absolutely, Mark. And it's, again, it's fascinating the size and, and the tech involved with these things. And um, especially when you're dealing with very small birds, Mark, and I've seen some of the, well, actually, I've physically glued some of these um, little tracking devices on um, helmeted honey eaters um, sized animals, which are very, very small um, little birds. And, you know, the, the percentage-wise compared with the actual weight of the animal, that's a, it's a fair bit even though you've got these little microtransmitters there. So it's a, a bit of an art, isn't it, all this um, all this sort of tech stuff. But it's good fun. But anyway, enough of that. Let's get on to our main topic for today before all our listeners go to sleep. But before we do that, Mark, we need to plug plug the podcast, which is Gurus. Dot com and ask your friends, get your friends and colleagues to subscribe because we're always looking after new subscriptions, which cost absolutely zero to do. And um, send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com to say hello and tell us where you live and what clinic you are involved in or what species you are working with because we, we love those emails. Communication so is everything, Brendan, and being able to communicate with the audience. Like I've said so many times, I would come to this chair and talk to this microphone just to connect with you if no one else listened. But if we can get other people to join the conversation, I just think it makes it that much more interesting does so our news topic well actually not our news topic our main topic for this week mark i chose this one so i i might push us into certain directions where this is renal disease or renal compromise in rabbits and the reason why i wanted to have this one is it's because it's a commonly asked question from referring veterinarians about how to diagnose renal compromise in our little pet rabbits and there is a particular test that we regard as the gold standard these days that probably a lot of vets even those dealing with rabbits reasonably frequently don't realize that they need to do this test because it's probably the only one that will pick up renal compromise in rabbits but jumping ahead of myself how common is this problem in rabbits and gee the more we look mark the more we find this um condition in rabbits and we're seeing it in lots and lots of rabbits obviously the the geriatric ones more frequently mark but we're seeing rabbits even two and three years of age 
with renal disease. Do you see We do. And, you know, the you mentioned the key thing before. I feel guilty now when we find these rabbits because we find them because we're looking for them. But, um, but geez, I think there's a lot of rabbits I look at in the past now and uh, go, that case was complicated by a rabbit whose renal function wasn't normal um, because it is like a very, very common finding. Yes, and I think the trick is trying to make sure we select the correct test for them. But if we go through the, well, I suppose the clinical signs we most commonly see with these um, compromised rabbits, um, guess <laughs> what? It's nothing new, Mark. It's the similar signs we would see in other species. And what is that? Well, it's the classic ones are potentially PUPD, but we'll talk about the Ooh, water intake that's a good rabbits topic, in a Brendan, sec. That's a good topic, um, because, because that is a good one, um, and don't let me forget that one. Um, but what's the classic signs of a renal animal? It's, well, it's cachexia, isn't it? It's wasting away. It's these rabbits that are slowly getting lighter and lighter and looking uh, looking pretty raggedy and looking like they're, they're wasting away. That's the most common sign I see with them. So they're starting to look frail, Mark, um, these rabbits. So I put renal compromise high on the list of any rabbit that has chronic illness where it just seems to be NQR, not quite right, Mark, and it's slowly wasting. There's a whole lot of other signs that we may commonly see, but that's the one that really stands out with me, those sort of chronic. Um, well, I'm going to ask you, Brendan, what else do you see? I, I um, definitely see those sort of like unkempt um, weight loss, uh, just not uh, looking after themselves. Um, do you do you see this these changes progress relatively quickly, like over a few weeks, or are they things that occur um, over a longer period of time? Um, is it is it a thing where the amount of urine changes, Brendan? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this this is going to be a short podcast, isn't it? Yes, to all of those, Mark. Yes, so I do see ones where it can be very quick. Um, so the progression, it can be dramatic with some of them in that they go from apparently healthy rabbits and perhaps there was renal compromise there already, but we didn't see it or we didn't see that sort of wasting to dramatic wasting and, and, and deterioration, deterioration in several days to several weeks and euthanasia of that animal to the more chronic ones. And, and the good news is some of them we can keep going and keep some quality of life with them or reasonable quality of life with them for months, if we're lucky years. But to be honest, I don't think we see many of them that last for, for many years, Mark, um, and, and I expect that you'd be saying the same thing, that you don't don't keep them going for very long. Yes, that, that is indeed the case. And I do, I struggle, you know, um, to, once we've got the diagnosis, once we're confident um, of the test results, um, it is often um, in the mind of the client, I suppose, that um, that we have something that's not going to be curable. And particularly because the rabbit's uh, quality of life, the, that whole weight loss, and they seem to spiral, um, you know, not like the cats we see might go on for um, three or four years even, but um, that doesn't seem to be the case with the rabbits I see. 
Yes, absolutely. I agree 100% there, Mark. We have exactly the same sort of thoughts with the ones that we see or experiences with the ones we see. Now, your other, what was your other questions? Are you in there? Yes. So um, that's getting back to the PUPD that we may see in commonly in other species with renal failure. And the difficulty there, Mark, is the number one, the water intake in rabbits in that rabbits are a bit unique with a lot of things, aren't they? And and one of those is water intake and that we can have such a incredibly wide range of supposedly normal water intake. And I think classically they talk about anything from 50 mils per kilo per day intake to 150 mils per kilo per day. So that's a huge range. And, and I think with, with what dogs and cats, it's much narrower. It's what, around 40 to 60 or 60 or 80, something like that. But, you know, that's a three time between 50 to 150 mils. So you might have a one kilogram a rabbit that 50 mils water a day is normal and you have another one kilogram rabbit that 150 is normal each day so and I think that also varies tremendously Mark um, depending on what that rabbit is eating and how much of the water content um, it is getting from its, its vegetable matter as well Mark so and the classic there would be a rabbit that's on the really crappy diets and, the, and those horrible mixes and not not many greens at all and then they switch them over to the to the greens and the grass and veggies or the hay and veggie diet and, and the owner makes a, a pretty dramatic comment about the, the changes in its water intake. So so the difficulty is, yes, with, with even with the renal compromised patients is they they may or may not show any change with, with their water intake. And ditto, um, same story with their water output as well, Mark. Um, I mean, certainly a lot of these renal compromised animals that are those classic aged animals will have comorbidities and other conditions going on there and that may include things like chronic urinary tract problems which may or may not be related to the renal failure and the spinal issues and all the and dental disease and all the other sort of aged conditions that we see in rabbits um, and that might... Um, that might complicate things as well there, Mark. So, yeah, the difficulty is that um, signs, uh, looking for signs of of urine, uh, of water intake and, and urine output put and, and saying that's a, that's a classic sign that we can tie down to renal compromise in a rabbit. Is, so um, one of my other questions for you is that when we have that um, archetypal cat in chronic renal failure, they will, um, they will develop that... Uh, compensatory mechanism where they do drink more water so they don't have to concentrate their urine. Um, so they become uh, polyuric and polydipsic. Um, but we'll often see rabbits that do spike a, um, you know, a massive increase in uh, water intake and a corresponding increase in water output. But it rarely seems to be associated with renal function. It, it's often associated with, um, well, in our thoughts, with other things. So is that something, do you see those spikes, those increases in water intake, water turnover um, for other disease processes, other arrangements? Yes. Definitely. Definitely. I think the main one there would be, in my thoughts, um, pain-related. Yes. 
Um, um, so, so they're uncomfortable for whatever re- reason or disease or diseases sitting there in the background, and and then they'd have a, a dramatic change in the water intake, um, and not necessarily related to renal function at all. There, Mark. So yeah, so it can be a bit of a challenge. So, you know, the, um, our next step is to try and diagnose it. Um, if the signs are fairly vague, apart from that rabbit that crashes pretty quickly over several days or weeks um, with renal compromise. Um, the one that we may pick up is that chronic one that we mentioned that is slowly wasting away. But um, as I said, um, it's always something that I'm increasingly looking at um, with any rabbit that we may be wanting to put on long-term medication, for instance, the non-steroidals like meloxicam, that we need to be very careful about making sure that the renal function is hopefully adequate and that's where we get to the testing mark which is the interesting bit and a lot of this I must um, do a shout out to to um, both Lizzie Selby who's done a lot of work on this and Jerry from the rabbit clinic here in Melbourne um, Australia and and they're sort of at the forefront of, of, of looking into the normals for rabbit and, and developing um, the and and um, well, um, stating the importance of this particular test that we do on the urine that um, is now what we probably regard as the gold standard. And so, yeah, a lot of the info is The really there. exciting thing about the work that they do, Brendan, is that um, I and I, I really shout their praises because it's some research that's done sort of from cl- clinical practice. I think it's a, a really, really important sector of uh, professional life that... Um, being able to contribute that knowledge um, in the way that um, that these guys have, um, it's really a, 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 an extra gratifying component to being a vet in private practice. Yes. Yes, again, Mark, I say. <laughs> your, your positivity so, traditionally is what we do. overwhelming. <laughs> I'm very positive, except when I'm not, Mark. So, yes, so traditionally what do we look at for diagnosis of renal failure in a lot of species? Well, we traditionally look at our blood screen, don't we, Mark? And we look at what values our urea and our creatinine. And for those of you who do not see many rabbits, the bad news is that it may be Maybe. completely normal. Maybe. It almost normal. always is completely normal. Yes, Sometimes it is, or you may even have low urea, for instance, in some of them um, that that may have um, dramatic compromised kidneys. There, yes. So, so the bad news is you cannot just you 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 don't diagnose renal failure in a rabbit based on urea and creatinine. And I know some of you might be driving off the road at the moment while you're listening to this podcast because you have you may have been doing bloods on rabbits and looking at the urea and creatinine and then saying, okay, that rabbit's fine, it has normal renal function, um, but it probably does not because that doesn't tell us much, if anything at all, about the renal function of that rabbit. So what do we look at? We look at urine, Mark, um, is the most important thing. And there is one particular test and cut into the chase that test is the urine protein creatinine ratio and if our listeners are going to remember one thing from this podcast, Mark, is that you need to run a urine protein creatinine ratio. That is the gold standard for detection of renal compromise in rabbits as much as we have at the moment. And what we need to do is make sure that sediment 
is not active. So what does that mean, Mark? I have no idea. What? How do you inactivate sediment? I've always wondered that, and it's something that the lab people talk about is that you need to, you need to do basically a dipstick and also do a little check of the urine sample you've obtained from the rabbit before you send it off to the lab for that urine protein creatinine ratio. Why? Because if that sample has any blood in it or white blood cells in there or a large amount of sludge or, or deposits in there, then I'm about to cough. The um, the value may be, well, it almost certainly will be invalidated. So that's what it means. So they talk about an, an inactive sediment being, a, well, what, what, what I think I would call is a, a normal sample. Um, so it hasn't got any positives on there. So it's a, a clean sample is a, probably another way of Makes saying Makes sense, that. Brendan. Those, um, those contaminants, the cellular contaminants, are definitely going to bugger up the, the ratio between creatinine and protein. So it would be good to have a sample that doesn't have them. Does that mean um, that... Uh, non-cellular components, the sediment, you know, if you have a few crystals in there and they aren't triggering blood or inflammatory cells, that's fine? Well, I don't know, Mark, is my answer to that. If, if, I think if you've only got a few, it's okay. And they may, may, Basically what we do, so I'm a bit croaky today, what we do is um, we'd, we'd run a dipstick in-house and ideally a little bit of a fresh smear as well um, and if everything looks pretty clear we don't have any obvious blood in there there's not a high um, leukocyte on there if there isn't anything funky on there Mark um, we haven't got a really high or low super high or low pH going on there um, and when we do a little um, check of the smear that we haven't got a large amount of of crystals in there, then I'll send it off to the lab and ask for that urine protein creatinine ratio. The other way of, of doing it is just bypassing that and send in your urine I'll sample from your rabbit to the lab and, and saying to them, look, yeah, is, if the sample's inactive or whatever um, term they use um, or um, run a urine protein creatinine ratio on it if if it's valid to do so um, and that's the easy way of doing it um, so yeah and and so what does that value mean well it means that um, and a, a lot of these renal compromised rabbits have have a protein loose in nephropathy mark so that's why we're getting that um, high protein level in the urine there so what's the value we're looking at well it looks like the value that's supposedly the normal range for a rabbit is between 0 and 0 0.5. Although if I see a rabbit that's at 0 0.5, I'd, I'd, I'd potentially be concerned that it may be at that level where it is just about compromise there. So at the moment, I tend to think, and it'll be interesting to see what, when Lizzie does her update at our conference, Mark, about, about this, I think she may be talking about renal failure hopefully um in rabbits that if it is 0.4 or less then i'd regard it as as, as um, a normal value there and anything over certainly over 0.5 is is significant mark so even 0.6 means that that rabbit definitely has has marked 
renal compromise and I've had some that are up to 0.8 or 0.9 and, and usually those ones are they're a bit of a mess mark and those rabbits don't last very long. Um, how, what sort of values have you been getting? With- well we've just been following that um, 0.5 and uh, and looking but I don't think we've had too many that have been up in the 0.9 range but um, anything that's over we're, we're counting them as uh renal dysfunction and starting to look at trying to manage them accordingly. When we do get those, Brendan, I, previously um, I used to take radiographs of lots of these animals because I was always worried about the failure of calcium and phosphorus metabolism that is associated with renal disease. Um, but I can't tell you, you know, I always used to be worried that I'd... Um, be able, you know, urolithiasis, the the calcium sludge we talked about. You 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 would see that in the urine, but um, uh, sclerosis uh, of the aortic and renal um, arteries, calcification, ectopic calcification. I've always read they're possible, but I don't see that much. No, well, we we certainly do um, not, Mark, as well. So, yeah, I agree with you totally there. So, um, yeah, but I, th- I think it's always worthwhile, especially if that rabbit does have a history of, of some sort of uroliths at some stage to 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 zap a radiograph as well um, as part of your workup when, you, when you're suspecting it's finally gone into renal failure because you may have some uroliths sitting there as well. Um, and I... To be honest, I think I've only seen I've seen way less than two. That's, two, that's, that's one. one. So maybe what? Yeah, exactly. Um, of that classic um, picture you see in the textbook of those calcified aorta or, or, or giant major vessels, there, Mark. Um, in um, and I think in the original textbook of rabbit medicine, it was reported as a potentially an incidental finding, wasn't it? In in, in some I can understand them saying that because of, it's um, just so inconstantly associated. Yeah. What about so? Just before you, I know you're itching, literally itching to get on to some of the other diagnostic imaging. But tell me quickly what you think about encephalitis zoonosis and the association with renal failure, Brendan. Yeah, you're really throwing the questions out to me tonight. You're making me work. You're making me work tonight. Yeah, well, the answer's yes. <laughs> it's yes again, Mark. Um, yes, yet again. Um, so, yeah, so the story with that for our listeners who don't um, don't remember the story with it is EEC, e- um, one of the predilection sites for encephalitis and caniculi is the kidneys as well as the brain which is the one everybody remembers um, so yes it, it's certainly been well reported as being part of the well part of the demise of a rabbit that has renal compromised hair mark but to be honest I don't think we're going to confirm the diagnosis um, with that unless we we do one of the steps that we consider to um, and I rarely do this if ever do it and that's a renal biopsy mark um, or or necropsy and having a look at that kidney and sending it off for the histopath I think that's really the only way to confirm that it did was related to an EC um, in the background Um, what's precisely the same thoughts that uh, for for a few cases we we did go to extraordinary lengths to, um, you know, check uh, immune response, the antibody response, and um, see 
see whether we could draw some correlations, but um, it didn't make any clinical difference. And so many rabbits are um, seropositive. Um, I think in our area here we estimate something like 40% of the wild rabbits are seropositive. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you then correlate the, the, the rabbit that goes into renal failure and has um, is seropositive to encephalitisone caniculi? Is it, is it cause and effect or is it coincidence? Yes, and I think the same argument could be made for the other two sort of conditions that are traditionally pointed at, um, as as being related to E. caniculi, and that's the, the head tilt in rabbits uh, and also the uh, eye problems and the lens-related um, issues with, with the rabbits there and that phacoclastic uveitis with them um, or even before it gets to that um, saying, you know, we're... What's, where's the chicken and the egg in it? You know, is it sitting there in the background? Is it causing this particular um, issue in the rabbit, or is it is it not? And um, yeah, it's um, that's one that that's a good one for arguing at the bar after uh, after a full day at a conference, Mark. <laughs> um, they're the sort of um, things we do. Although, yeah, having said that, that's not what we argue at the bar about, do we? We just drink um, <laughs> after a full day at a conference. Um, so, yeah, no, good point, Mark. So, e-caniculi is, is, is certainly something that's been um, associated with potentially renal compromise in rabbits and it needs to be something that you keep on your differential diagnosis list for them. So, our other diagnostic methods mark for for renal um, compromise in rabbits and we've already mentioned one is is a biopsy there um do you do you do that commonly i cannot remember the last time i biopsied a, a rabbit's li- a kidney i i don't th- i would not be surprised if i have had an entire veterinary career and not taken a sample from a live rabbit's kidney Snap, I think. Um, I can't remember one that I've done, let alone two, Mark. So, yes. Um, and, the, and the other one is, and this is one that you've probably done a lot more than me because you get yours out all the time, and that is ultrasound. <laughs> I do get it out all the time. I'm not very good at using it, though. Um, and it, it, the thing I would say about that is that um, unlike um, the kidneys, chronic kidneys of the chronically failed kidneys of cats which you know have that knobbly scarred contracted appearance um we don't see that the the kidneys of rabbits that uh that uh, failed when i whacked the ultrasound probe on them they i might be able to um imagine that they're slightly smaller but they i certainly don't see them have the uh um you know that characteristic chronic knobbly appearance that our felines have Yes, and it's not rare that I'll be palpating a, an old cat and feeling those knobbly, um, shrunken sort of kidneys in that, and then immediately the alarm bells say, look, we've got a cat that's wasting away, it's drinking a lot, we have very small kidneys, we've almost certainly got a renal cat on our hands, and, and yes, when we're palpating those rabbits, um, more often than not, well, 99% of the time we're palpating the kidneys of those rabbits and they, they feel relatively normal physically on the clinical exam as well, Mark. So, yeah. So, yes. Um, well, that's good 
good to know that I don't need to grab the ultrasound mark and start using it more often because um, you've already told me I don't need to um, because I'm not going to find anything there. <laughs> but there's always the possibility, and my staff are very good at telling me that um, I don't find very much with ultrasound, but that might not be because it's not there. Yeah, perhaps you're not. You're pointing the probe in the wrong direction, Mark. Um, that may be the case. So let's jump on to, well, treatment. What do we do with these, Mark? What's your thoughts on this? I'm going to kick this one back to you to to see what um, your approach to to chronic compromised kidneys in a rabbit. Well, what um, the most frequent thing that we do is um, that we get try and get the rabbits onto the um, critical care. We find that if we can increase the intake of fluid orally, um, then we uh, often find that that gives the best short-term outcome. Um, the Oftentimes, the, um, I think there are some of our gut stasis cases that... Uh, or altered blood flow in the abdomen um, leads to damage in the kidneys. And so gut stasis is a, a complicating factor in these cases. So we're regularly trying to normalise the gut function and, um, and uh, assist feeding them with critical care. Getting the owners to learn how to do that um, has both the effect of normalising gut function to a certain extent, um, uh, which takes away one layer of problem for the kidney, but also provides that um, that additional fluid. So that's probably our first step, Brendan. Well, that's not only my first step, it's my second and third step as well. Um, so what I tend to really concentrate on, on well, actually, no, there is two steps, is fluid therapy and fluid therapy and, yeah, getting nutrition into them um, because we've got that protein losing going on there and that's part of the reason why they're wasting away. So we do try and feed them up a bit, Mark, and, and I think critical care and, and variations on, on that is a is a good thing to do. So we do try and get them to... to um, get some weight back on them by, by giving them the critical care. And I, I sometimes recommend to them that they um, use the normal, the the Oxbow pellets as well and, and um, um, mush them up as well. Some of them seem to enjoy um, taking that as a mush as well. Um, but, yes, fluids, um, definitely the, the other way to get, get more fluids through that rabbit and the, to treat, keep flushing those kidneys and keep them working a little bit longer is also just adding some more of the vegetables and, and the products that have a higher moisture content there, Mark, um, wetting the foods, particularly the, the vegetables that they're feeding the rabbit. It's such an easy, simple method um, that clients can do at home just say to rinse off the vegetables and they should be doing that anyway and and the grass and the weeds um, before they feed it to their rabbit and um, that can often increase the water intake with them. Some of them that were struggling um, with Mark um, I also suggest to them um, and it's probably one of the few cases or, or conditions where I would be suggesting that is to not only have two or three 
water sources for the rabbit, but potentially um, having one of those water sources that has a little bit of flavour in there. So that would be flavouring um, some of the water with with something. What sort of things would you use to flavour it, Brendan? Yeah, and that and that's where it's you know ideally. We wouldn't be doing it in a in a in an ideal word for a normal rabbit. So that would be something that may be a little bit sweet, and that would be potentially a little bit of cranberry juice or, or pear juice or apple juice um, that's added to the water. That's what I typically recommend, Mark, um, with them. Um, they certainly don't seem to like citrusy things, so you don't want to put a bit of orange juice in there. I don't. I don't have. So have many rabbits that seem to like that. So, so yeah. So it's giving them an option of another water source that has a little bit of a, a little bit of a, a, a flavour in there. And um, if they seem to like that, then I'm much less worried about them um, eating a bit of um, tiny bit of sugar that might be in that than than the than the renal compromise that we're trying to trying to control with them. Um, and the other one that's, well, this, this I'd like your thoughts on this, Mark, but my thoughts on this, and it is just my thoughts on on this particular um, treatment or control method is, um, and some vets are, go, go to town with this one, and that is limiting the calcium content of the foods. Um, so, um, and, and some, some rabbit veterinarians, um, and I don't know whether it's right or wrong, but I'm sort of on, on the opposite of this, um, like to really stress to clients, don't feed calcium-rich foods um, to them, that that might um, be part of the process of, of trying to stop um, not only the, if we've got a... Um, complication with the with the sludgy urine and the and the uroliths and the um the 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 um the um sand and the grit that they have in that that urinary tract in the bladder and the urethra there mark but but also potentially with this condition as well so do you ever recommend that um and, and i'm speaking broadly about um, um both the renal failure cases but also the, the the ones that don't have supposed renal failure but also have the urolithiasis issues as well um, my general re- um, th- recommendations to my clients anyway are though that in theory it would be good to potentially limit the calcium um, um, fed to this animal. But uh, I think my, my personal thought is in practice that it doesn't seem to make that much difference. So I, so I tend not to really stress that as a, as a potential control or treatment option for them. Um, what's your thoughts on that? That can of worms, mate. <laughs> um, I, I think that the homeostatic mechanisms in rabbits are so effective um, at harvesting calcium from the diet and uh, and maintaining the levels in the circulatory system um, that that we have minimal ability to alter that process by managing the calcium in the diet um, and and um, and you know we can't feed a diet that is completely absent of calcium um, and if there's even a little bit of calcium in there, the rabbits get it out. So I'm not a big fan of it. Well, definitely, there's definitely been times where we've tried it um, because, you know, we're open-minded and uh, we don't like to... And the, the interesting thing about so many of the things that you and I talk about is that there's some uh, evidence base, but it's not really that you know, extensive. And so for some of these clinical questions we're asking, we could well be wrong, Brendan. There could be in the future a discovery that um, it's absolutely critical to manage that calcium. But uh, I'm much like you. The cases where I have recommended it, great clients with... uh, 
wonderful ability to follow through, so I trust that they've done it, just doesn't seem to make any difference to those rabbits at all. What about the other side of the coin, the other side yes, of the well, calcium and phosphorus coin, Brendan? The, I've, I have um, a couple of times treated rabbits with phosphate binding agents to, you know, try and limit the amount of uh, phosphate that's available to bind to the calcium and produce those insoluble salts that might be deposited in the renal system and in the bladder and lead to that sludge. Have you had any experience with that? Yes. (laughs) Your positivity is literally drowning me. And my answer to that one is similar, similar answer in that um, I tend not to recommend it because I don't think it, it, um, anecdotally, I don't think it has had much, much effect. So I'd be interested in your comments about the one you've tried on it. Yeah, it's a waste of time. Similar story with our a classic would be our guinea pigs with the chronic urolithiasis as well, Mark, um, that you might um, then be trying to use variations on that to try and um, settle down that, that um, guinea pig that keeps flaring up with its um, urinary issues as well. Um, um, having said that, um, there are some vets who, who use them in both of those species, guinea pigs and rabbits, and they seem to have good apparent success. But my thought is that um, I haven't had good success in my, in my experience, so maybe I'm using the wrong dose rate or, or doing it wrong. Um, yeah, but getting back to the the calcium limitation uh, of the diet, Mark. Yes, definitely. If there's a if there's a client who's feeding some something weird and wonderful to their rabbit as far as um, vegetables, or they're feeding a super high calcium. Um, superfood or something or other to them, then yeah, I'll be, I'll be, I do do a review of their diet when I when I diagnose renal compromise in their rabbit, and if they're feeding something weird and wonderful, then I certainly um, will get them to cut back on it. But but I don't, I'm not a fan of giving clients long lists of feed all these foods, don't feed all of these foods. I try and keep it simple um, for them, and and my bottom line with the renal ones are yeah, get fluids into them, and get more fluids into them. And and um, keep the meeting, um, and and that's all I've got, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're so positive, even when you're finishing. Yes. Um, well, yeah. Do you have any other other comments of sort of treatment or control or prevention? Well, that's you know, what I was going to ask you. How how do you have a program of prevention? Because this is, I think, we'll find it's a. You know, a, a, there will be a growing tide of diagnoses, and um, people will be going. Well, how do we stop this happening? That your at your um, rabbit conference next year? Are they going to be annually? I think they're going to be annually. Um, yes. The new question on everyone's lips will be, Brendan, how do we stop them getting renal failure? Well. My answer would be don't buy a rabbit, um, but it's probably not the right thing to say in front of a hundred owners um, in, in the lecture theatre. So yeah, I might get um, stoned, Mark, um, when that happens. They'll be throwing stuff at me. Um, no, so I, I've I don't know, Mark. I don't know what the answer to that one is. Um, the the only other final comment before we um, sign off, Mark, would be um, as far as weird and wonderful things that people feed to their rabbits and, and all the other small mammals that um, we have mentioned before, but I think we need to um, stress again is that um, I find there's a very strong relationship between feeding 
well, what are they called? They're called salt licks or mineral blocks um, to these animals, so especially guinea pigs and rabbits when people buy these little um, supplements that they buy in the pet shops and the, and the feed stores. Um, so, um, that um, And they still sell them, unfortunately, in, in feed stores worldwide. Um, there's a... There's a, there's a big association with those in in my opinion with, with the development of things like urolithiasis and potentially renal failure and other issues long term um what do you think about that comment mark <laughs> well i think that i'm a fool because um until you mentioned it to me a couple of years ago i hadn't drawn well i literally hadn't been asking the question and and i go into our local feed store and they have those wonderful big salt licks that uh, cattle use and i have seen people with their uh, small pet herbivores get those things and and now that you've pointed out to me it there i do reckon there is a correlation um with the uh incidence of um, particularly urolithiasis and the presence of those salt licks in the animal's enclosure. So I'm, a, I'm with you all the way on that one. Let's not have those with our guinea pigs and rabbits. Yes. Yes, again, Mark. I'm a yes man tonight and I think... On that point, we um, well, we're just about lasted another hour again. I thought this was going to be a 30-minute podcast tonight, Mark. So as usual, we managed to string it out to almost an hour. And we will talk to you all next week. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.